Hello, this is Shed. Episode one. Uh, it's, it's a bumper episode today on race and poetry inside and outside of the UK. Um, so we interviewed Dorothy Wang and then uh, Nisha Ramia um, about uh, race and poetry and also the upcoming Race and Poetry in the UK Conference too, um, which they're both uh, organising. So Dorothy and Nisha are both scholars of race and poetry in some sense. Uh, Dorothy Wang is an academic who's published the book Thinking Its Presence form, race and subjectivity in contemporary Asian American poetry. Uh, Nishira Ramaya is also a practicing poet um, and she's going to be reading at the end of her section and she's published three books, Notes on Sanskrit and Correspondences, both with Oyster Catcher Press and recently Threads, which is co-authored with Banu Kapil and Sandeep Parmar and was published by Clinic Press. Um, in Nissa's part of the podcast, which is the second part, there is a slight buzz uh, during the recording, so sorry about that. Uh, it wasn't something we were aware of when we were recording, so that won't happen in future podcasts, hopefully. Okay, here we go. First of all, I guess uh, a little bit about your, your book, Thinking Its Presence, um, which uh, has definitely um, kind of been a key a key book for lots of people writing about um, American poetry, um, Asian American poetry, and all sorts of other things. Um, how did it? How did it come about? And like, what was the kind of moment in which you embarked on that research? Wow. Uh, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, Edmund, and to be here with you and Laurel in London. Um, it actually had a very, very long genesis, and there were many moments when I actually thought the book wasn't going to ever be published. It started as my dissertation, um, uh, and I actually have a, a, a UK link because my advisor at Berkeley, David Lloyd, is uh, who's Irish um, from Dublin, but got his undergraduate and graduate degrees at Cambridge, and um, had actually had Print as a tutor, J.H. Print as a tutor. Um, I remember at the time I wasn't sure what I was going to write my dissertation on. I actually thought I was going to write on diasporic fiction, so sort of Asian Anglophone Asian diasporic fiction in Australia and England, UK and. Canada and the US and I remember David saying to me at one point he knew that I wrote poetry at the time I wrote poetry I no longer write poetry but um, I think he had judged a poetry contest or something that I had submitted something for and I remember he said to me well if you're going to do the Anglophone diasporic work you're going to have to learn about all the sort of educational systems all the social systems of these countries which at the time I wasn't really keen on I really wanted to do a lot of close reading and um and realize, I think that was a moment which I realized the enormity of what that would mean of, of if you're going to write on the literary texts of the country, you actually had to know a lot about the history and the, and the society in which those texts came from. And then David actually was, was the one who suggested to me one, at one point and said, will you, will you work on poetry? Have you thought about writing on that for your dissertation? And then I realized that having written poetry, I was actually very interested in certain technical aspects it was a certain initial interest in formal, like actual f concrete formal issues, such as metaphor, such as, of course, I ended up writing on metaphor, irony, parody, um, some other things as well. But um, so that's actually how it started as my dissertation. 
But it morphed over time because so much time passed since my dissertation was written and, and when the book came out. The book came out at the end of 2013, and that was quite a long span of time. And over that period of time, actually, I had graduated from Berkeley. I had then become a professor in uh, various English departments at Wesleyan, Northwestern, and now I'm at Williams College, where I teach in the American Studies program. And I would have to say the the reality of what it meant to be a woman of color working on poetry in various institutional settings. Um, those institutional contexts and the sort of uh, the ways in which I realized that poetry was not just this abstract thing, that literature was very much contextualized by institutions, structures of power, ideologies that became very real for me in very concrete ways. That then started to inform the book in ways that I didn't even understand at the time. I ended up, as I said, in an American studies program at Williams College. And at the time, I had a bit of a kind of English department snobbery about American studies. I felt like, well, why? You know, I was hired in American studies mainly because the English department wasn't really interested in Asian American literature, to be frank. Mm. And but I have to say it was one of the best things that ever happened to me being hired into an American studies program, which is very interdisciplinary has a, a lot of critique um, and a lot of thinking about history and ideology and all kinds of things, and having to teach American Studies classes and everything. And um, I learned a lot myself from doing that and from my students and from colleagues. And I think that's what led finally to the final version of the book, because the very the introduction to the book is a very long critique, a polemic against um, sort of literary organizations like the MLA and... and mm-hmm. uh, conferences and all kinds of ways in which uh, the problematics of race get worked out or played out, you know. And it's a, I mean, that polemical introduction is incredibly clear. um, And it still seems like a a kind of bold, like, statement crystallizing a particular moment, which I think, like, even, like, reading now a few years later is kind of... um, brings brings to light all sorts of things just because reading such a clear exposition of them um do you do you still feel that 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 kind of like the the boldness of that moment um well sadly i actually thought that the book would be outdated i, I mean sad mm. sad that it isn't outdated and, and that and unfortunately that some of the racial problematics or the racial politics of it continue to persist um the book, you know, as I said, took was a long time in the writing, and by the time it came out, some of the debates that I had focused on in the introduction had had passed. You know, there had been a few years since they had taken place. So I really did think at some point that um, some of the racial critiques would have become less urgent. Um, and in some ways, things have changed. I think you, we were discussing earlier that um, many things have changed. Something, I mean, some things have changed around race and. Um, there's certain things that would never happen, or are less likely to happen nowadays, where you would have an all-white gathering of poetry critics, though it does still happen, sadly. But I do think other things haven't changed that much, and I think it's a question of um, which context we're we talking about. Because, of course, among poets, young poets in particular, I think there's a lot more discussion around issues of race. Um, but in sort of the elite corridors, uh, quarters of elite institutions with very established poetry um, scholars. I'm not sure that much has changed. I, I think one of the things that stands out as as having almost deepened 
since the book came out is is its critique of um the, the um kind of tags like identity politics or identity based writing which has kind of carried on as a critique of um under and by kind of an obfuscatory critique of race or obfuscatory critique of um like writing by people of color mm-hmm. um by 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 critiquing a kind of particular a straw version of politics that uh, by calling it identity politics and that's well, that's almost accelerated uh, maybe it's just accelerated across kind of political thinking more more right. than just in poetry circles but that seemed like one of the one of the standout things from that in that polemic introduction is a very an extremely clear kind of um uh, it's extremely clear, kind of pulling apart of those kind of what what is it that, what is it that people are talking about when they talk when they critique identity politics or writing, which is identity writing, um, but so, right, but yeah, um, maybe could you could you just kind of go a little bit into that 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 critique? Sure, yeah. I mean, in that introduction, uh, I looked at a, a, a several or a few scholars who excoriate this notion of what they call identity politics or identity writing. Identity becomes the the big bad word. Um, and what I say in that chapter is that what they're really talking about is race and racial identity. Um, and it gets set up as this tra- straw man category, <clears throat> which um, actually evades really difficult and direct discussions about race and racism. And I think one thing that you're saying, Edmund, that does resonate today is that people, yes, whereas people nowadays probably would not hold a conference in which they invited only one person of color or no people of color, there are other ways in which I think the evasion of the discussion around uh, the racial politics of poetry or the racial, or, or the sort of racialized foundations of just, of poetic concepts in general. I mean, though that evasion persists, and I think people have actually become much more clever at bearding themselves racially, so that one. I think we were talking about this earlier, that so that one can say, well, issues of capitalism or issues of class are much more important than issues of race, as if these two things, as if race and class and capitalism were ever extricable, you know, as if they weren't intertwined, right? Um, I think there are also ways in which people will continue the kind of tokenizing um, or or just include more minority critics or poets in a gathering, but it's still a, it's still a tokenizing, right? And I think I'm a little bit alarmed by this new formalism. I don't know if that's happened in the UK, but this kind of new scholarship that's on um, so-called form and formalism, um, which will look at a text by, say, a Black writer and then the critic will sort of feel like they've dealt with politics and race, but there's been no understanding of the uh, of the of the deep scholarship on critical race studies. There's been no understanding at all of of a history of black intellectual or minority intellectual thought. So it can be someone who maybe was trained as a Victorianist comes in, decides to do an analysis of a book by an African American writer, um, perhaps close readings, perhaps some background context, but doesn't really know um, post-colonial thinking or post-colonial scholarship or scholarship of race. I mean, there's a lot there that I, I guess it's, it's would be good to jump on, but I guess just picking up on the last thing that you said, 
so where there's this kind of maybe shift from uh, focusing on for example an African American writer uh, that maybe a few years ago that would have been done in a, in a quite um, shallow way or without sort of requisite like attention to the actual detail of form mm-hmm. um, and be treating the poems just as poems by a black person mm-hmm. um, and now there maybe is is a kind of shift too much the other way um, uh, being like oh well we don't need to actually specifically talk about uh, the kind of big issue of race because we're talking about form in the work of someone who is racialized. Mm, um, right. And so, do you think that maybe implies there is something missing in a lot of the formalist work done on, on white poets that actually this isn't very deep criticism if it's not analyzing their subject positions as like enmeshed in? in racism themselves right well i think yeah i mean i think that that's a good point i mean i don't know if it's that people are actually doing too much or a lot of formal analysis of of work by poets of color i i have a feeling that that a lot of it still isn't actually very specific formal criticism but i could be wrong um i do think that what I'm, I think what I was trying to argue in the book and what I continue to think is that there is a double standard for how you analyze uh, poetry by uh, poets of color or by white poets. That For all poets, one has to look at the inextricability of the form from the social context, the historical context, the ideological context that produced it. And obviously that includes a lot of things besides just the racial position or the racial identity. It includes also, you know, class, gender, sexuality, educational level, region. But I think, as I said in the book, that at least in the United States, and I have a feeling probably in the UK, but you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, that race is this particularly difficult topic for people to talk about. Um, it's just, especially in the United States, people get so defensive. And immediately, um, if one talks about race or even institutional racism, the the response is immediately, I'm not a racist. And I have a feeling that a lot of the, and again, I don't want to generalize too much, but that in some cases where you have, say, an anthology or a gathering and, and people have included uh, poets or scholars of color, that it's often much more about how that particular configuration makes the white organizer or the white critic feel about themselves <clears throat> it's really a way to alleviate a certain white liberal guilt i think again i don't want to generalize because obviously there's you know there are situations in which this is not the case but i think that this focus on um I, this is to use a ter- uh, to use a term that the mongrel coalition actually sort of um brought forth white fragility i mean this notion of white fragility or mm. the focus on the sort of the center is always the sort of white person's emotional, their emotions or their feelings about something. So I think um, that becomes very problematic, I think. And I think one of the, this is a kind of one of the contexts for, for what we're t- kind of talking about, that, that historically and now the, the, the actual effects of these kind of institutionalizations and operations of racism is that lots of writers of color will never write or stop writing or um, 
their writing might be published or um, they'll kind of turn away from writing or or whole histories of whole histories of publication will just be left in the archive or never reach an official archive it's like we're, we're talking about kind of um, how the history of poetry is also just the history of kind of <clears throat> of kind of suppression and is, is, is actually a kind of a violent archiving practice and and so it's it's an incredibly huge and absolutely important kind of task now that we can begin to to talk about these things and mm. and write about these histories right i mean i think i mean there's no question i think we all understand that english as a discipline whether it's english poetry studies or english literary studies it's a colonial enterprise i mean that's the mm. reason we have english departments right yeah. Yeah. it's not an accident you know it's it's this is yeah. a colonial enterprise and like all colonial enterprises um that history was is a very distorted history. It was written by the victors, and it's been extremely whitewashed, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain narrative uh, that places people of color on the periphery as addenda, if they're even acknowledged at all. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the thing about poetry, of course, we understand this, is that because people like to think that poetry is about feeling and about expressivity or about even language with a capital L, that it's somehow exempt from ideology and violence. And, you know, I Shakespeare is a great poet. Milton is a great poet. But, you know, poetry was used for the furthering of empire. I mean, it was really used by the, by the British as, as, a, as a form. I mean, poetry really was a sort of um, way of saying we are superior to you. We have this incredibly exquisite cultural achievement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is a very violent history. And I think it's very hard for people to think of poetry as something that is deeply politicized mm-hmm. and deeply racialized. So I think actually the, the two major tasks that I had for, for poetry scholars, for young poetry scholars especially, one is what you referred to, Edmund, is this idea of like of going into the archives and really thinking about which poets have been erased or forgotten or alighted or marginalized and to rethink even the poets that we know and their achievements, right? Or what, you know, to rethink literary history and our writing of literary history so that someone like, well, you know, someone like Yone Noguchi or Sadakichi Hartman, early Asian American poets who are thought of as curiosities in a way, they're thought of as foreigners, but how you know? But they were in the middle of lots of Bohemian avant-garde movements in New York City, right? They knew Pound, they knew Alfred Stieglitz, they um, Hartman knew the French symbolist poets. We may quibble about the quality of their poetry, but they were actually central to what was happening around experimental poetry movements that, of what we now consider modernism, right? And obviously, Noguchi's translations of of haiku Japanese haiku but also his own writings in English influence pound and then influence imagism and when we think of language poets also why is it that Harriet Mullen and Erica Hunt are given these sort of sideline positions and whereas like language poetry is thought of as a very as very much um, a movement done by white major white poets right and I think we can say that throughout literary history that there have been people that have been sidelined and erased inside. So I think that's one major mm-hmm. task that lies ahead. Um, 
The other major task I think I hinted at in my book and I feel very strongly about is that we actually think about these so-called objective or neutral concepts of poetry. Things like tone, things like the poetic speaker, things like the emphasis on description, say, or what Mm. we consider good description in a poetry workshop. I'm thinking as much about teaching as scholarship as and and creative writing as well as in academic classes. These so-called neutral, objective, universal, unmarked concepts are are actually deeply, deeply racialized, gendered, classed, right? And I think that's a huge task that lies ahead, and it will not be an easy one. The fact that you mentioned things like 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 the lyric eye, I think it is quite it's quite telling um, um, how how sort of canny lots of um, people are who are maybe genuinely trying to think um, in, in terms of like M three point oh six for poetry, but how they are able to sort of navigate, um, you know the maybe problematic aspect of these things mm-hmm. whilst not addressing them thoroughly. So I feel like with the Lyric Eye particularly, there was this kind of move in experimental poet- poetics away from the Lyric Eye as mm-hmm. this kind of like, you know, it was right. the marker of, you know, white universalism or like any kind of universalism. Uh, and then then the thing became to, to void yourself of the, of the eye. Right. And that then became a way of critiquing people who did that in a identitarian I'm mean, doing air quotes here but you can't right. say, way um as as you know not sufficiently sufficiently aware of like the problematic nature of that right well it comes from a position of of entitlement right of unquestioned entitlement where you can say that I'm not interested in the I I'm not interested in identity because if you're a white I'm just going to, you know, generalize a white male poet. You probably haven't really had to think too much about it. I mean, you know, when you think about, say, lyric poetry, a poet like, you know, people, I think on the avant-garde side or the experimental side of things would critique a poet like Robert Frost, right? But if you think about someone like Robert Frost and you and, and the poems that we were all taught in school, I don't know if they're taught here in the UK, but... Um, but you know the road not taken and things like that. They feel that. very present. <laughs> they feel very present, right? So they they were very big when I was growing up, and in, in, in you know in like I guess elementary and high school. Um, so the road not taken gets read as sort of this universal, like what uh, allegory or sort of universal like like the directions one might have taken in life, right? Like the choice one makes at a crucial crossroads in life. But actually, it's a, it's a poem written by a white. I guess he was middle-aged or maybe not yet middle-aged New England poet living on a farm in Vermont with a family. Um, so why was that, you know, why is it that we never question that, that 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 type of poem should be applicable to all human beings, right? It was just sort of mm. accepted that, you know, even the most quotidian or just kind of, you know, concerns of of people of of poets, of white poets in their in their lyric poems were supposed to say great universal things about everyone's life or like profound metaphysical questions in life. Right. Um, And I think that what you're saying, Laurel, about the experimental poets kind of critiquing that, that kind of universalism, I I understand. I mean, that, that was certainly a legitimate project, but then in, in doing so, they also did not think about their 
their blindness about race, right? And their subject positions in which they were quite good in critiquing capitalism and quite good in critiquing issues of class. And they were really terrible at race and not that great on gender, really. But um, so in my book, of course, I talk about moments in which both, you know, Kenneth Goldsmith and then I think a few other poet critics talk about really being against identity. But we understand, as we said earlier, what identity really means here. Mm. It's not every identity, right? It's a certain kind of identity. And identity politics in the United States really, really just meant racial identity politics. So in some ways, what this kind of... Um going back to the elements of poetry like the the lyric I or understanding the I in, in the history of poetry what we might actually work towards is a far more nuanced interesting history history of poetry which we can understand that a poem, a poem by Robert Frost is not a universal pathway in a wood and, right, actually, and actually right. that kind of makes the poem more interesting in my, in my mind is the, specifically that the kind of place right and, re, and rethink um, there's also this, you know, in, in creative writing workshops, I don't know, I think it still pertains that there's a lot of emphasis on craft or thinking about craft and things. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of language used in creative writing or in poetry classes, which we haven't really questioned voice, craft. Some people have, mm. I mean, obviously the language poets have, I mean, some of the avant-garde poets have questioned that, but I think it just gets recycled a lot these days. And I'm thinking of an example of um, a, a white poet who told me not too long ago that um, she was teaching a class on description and she brought an example of a kind of minimal description or minimalist description. It was a haiku translation by Robert Haas. It was his translation of a Japanese haiku. And so she brought it in as just as an example of some kind, I think, minimal or minimalist description. And a student actually raised her hand and said, I'm having a problem with how Orientalist this translation is. And then this particular poetry teacher said, oh, but I'm not discussing that. It may be Orientalist, but I'm not interested in that. I really am just using this as an example of description, so I really don't want to talk about that. And I was having a conversation with this person, and I said, well, the student was absolutely right. Because you can't say that your example of minimalist description, a haiku, a Japanese haiku, translated by Robert Haas, who I think doesn't even know Japanese, actually. <laughs> that the Orientalism of that, or the ways that that's peripheral to this question of what description is, right? But there are ways in which we don't think of that. We think, we think that that is peripheral. We think that the racial politics, the orientalizing, is not the main concern here because the main concern is the technical craft issue of description, right? So it's things like that, you know, that we've sort of taken for granted for a long time. And I think the problem with the kind of tokenism or the multiculturalism or the diversity, the project of like inclusivity and diversity is that I think it allows just... It allows minority poets into the fold on the terms that they be good minority poets, that they be model, and that you don't mm -hmm. get to have, you don't want the ugly, unattractive, difficult, obstinate minority poet, poet right? Or minority poems, right? 
So I think the complexity, the sort of three-dimensionality of human experience has really been denied um, to people and poets of color. You know, so so it was very extreme at one point with like in the avant-garde world in which many poets of color felt that they absolutely could not even write about identity. They could not write about race mm. at all. It was just the pressure was so intense that they conform, right, to kind of these expectations of being uh, an experimental poet who only played with language, as if one could do that without having it be tied to who that person is. Right. If you're a person, a person of color, how could it be that you why was it a dirty thing to talk about race? Right. Um, and I think that sense of shame around bringing up race um, was very, very strong. And I think in some it continues, perhaps in some form today. I'm not sure. It's like this incredible catch 22 situation. Right. It's like a no win situation for for poets of color because. Because either you're not, like, be, by the very fact of being a person of color, if you're going to write at all about your racial identity or about race, you've already put yourself in the category of the non-universal and the particular. And so you've excluded yourself from having any, like, larger relevance, right? Or your poetry will, should only be read, or your poetry has meaning mainly for people of color, perhaps in your group, who understand, who, who, who could connect to what you're writing about. So let me try to think of a concrete example. So, for example, when I was teaching, say, like the poetry of Marilyn Chin, an Asian American woman poet, I often had this problem when I was teaching her poetry that students would look at a poem and speak about the poetic speaker as if it were Marilyn Chin. So they would often say, Marilyn is doing this and that in the poem. And I would have to say, wait, there is a separation. The poetry the speaker is not necessarily the poet and you cannot assume so there was this way in which mm. students were immediately assuming that the poem was this autobiographical expression a very particular expression of the poet and then i was talking to a colleague of mine a friend of mine who taught frank o'hara in the classroom and frank o'hara you know as we know is a queer i don't know if he was working class was he working class queer poet urban poet a particular you know historic-sized person, as we all are. And he told me that he had the opposite problem, that when he was teaching O'Hara, he had to get the students to understand that a lot of the language in the poems was <laughs> urban gay male speech of a certain particular time in New York in the 50s, you know? And it wasn't just this universal language. So I found that particularly interesting because I was thinking, well, you know, obviously O'Hara was a gay poet, but because he was a white man, he was still read in this universal fashion. But so there was no necessary. I don't think I think he, what he was saying was that it was actually very hard to get the po the students to see that this wasn't just a generic universal voice speaking. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for poets of color, this has been a they're, they're like nobody. People do not tend to universalize poems by poets of color. And then on the other hand, as you were saying, Laurel, but then when they try to erase every sort of like trace of of race or ra racial identity in their poems, I think they face another kind of bind, which is that traditionally with a lot of the avant-garde critics or other poets, they were either sort of applauded for not doing identity politics, like, oh, great, they write like us. They don't talk about these things, right? They're not doing... They're not talking about race in the way that bad identity poets do. 
But they were also tokenized, I think, in a certain way as being included in sort of events as like, look, there's this cool Latina or this cool Asian American experimental poet who we could feel good about including as a person of color, but also, um, so we get, a, so there is this kind of like white liberal satisfaction, I think, about having the sort of like presence of people of color at these avant-garde gatherings. And yet, um, they're not allowed to really speak about race in their poems. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. So I think there's this incredible bind yeah, that, yeah. that poets, whether they were quote unquote mainstream lyric poets or quote unquote experimental poets, it was just a no-win situation, really. I suppose, yeah. What, what I was, I was kind of, sort of trying to be towards is, yeah. What, yeah. Is this kind of absurd sense of like propriety, even in like avant-garde scenes, right? That yes, and that it's, it's like it's it's more experimental to like completely like go against the rules of of these right. avant-garde scenes. That the experiment is in not just adhering to what you can and can't do to be experimental, it kind of it falls back on itself. Right. Exactly. And I think the whole idea of what counted as experiment was a big question as well, right? We, yeah. I'm sure this has been discussed a lot, but certain things like fracturing syntax or doing certain formal things were considered radical and high modernist. And, the, but, and yet other forms of experimentation, like say bringing in other language, non-English languages, are, unless you're like bringing in European languages, or maybe if you're pound bringing in Chinese in a certain way. But but if you were certainly if you're an Asian American poet bringing in Chinese forms, that was not considered experimental necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that's what Marilyn Chin, one of the poets I wrote about in my book, often would say to me. She's like, "Well, I'm not considered experimental, right?" So I think there were just again these were like sort of the racialized assumptions undergirding our notions of what experiment were are or were, right? And these are things that just don't get discussed at all. And I think it's still very, very difficult for people to discuss them, right? Because there's just something about poetic form that is considered sort of sacrosanct, I think, right? I think form Mm. in both this kind of long tradition of thinking about prosody and and like metrical analysis and all this kind of that kind of old-fashioned form that we think about, but also form as the very engine of what we think of as experimentation in the avant-garde and what gives the avant-garde a kind of feeling of superiority, right? Um, one of the one of the threads in your writing and in your book is to look at metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a passage when you, in which you're talking about um, difference and the, how metaphors kind of move both a kind of contradictory, uh, paradoxical forms of speech that kind of move both ways and mm-hmm. uh, I suppose the question that arose for me reading that is, is is to what extent you think um certain core elements of of like his, historically per, per, the literary um can hold difference or is there a, is are there ways in which yeah is, are there ways in which the racialization and poetic form runs into these kind of charismatic uh, paradoxes. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, one of the difficulties I had actually um, with writing the book was knowing, ex- how, and I don't think I actually got it, and I'm not sure it's possible, was to ha- to think about how something like metaphor as a formal um, crux or structure, 
how you can think about that as both existing within a poem and it's linked to the outside world. Because I kept struggling. I remember thinking I had such a hard time and I, I never really resolved it. Was was metaphor, was it mirroring, was it echoing, was it homologous to what was what was how was that how does how do forms and poetry actually what is the structure of that in relation to the structure of something outside i think in the metaphor chapter i talked about assimilation mm. right and the idea of cleaving in leon lee's poetry which is both a coming together and a coming apart right cleaving the two senses of the word cleaving mm. and i think it's a very difficult question because i think one of the things that we come up against when we think about formal elements in a poem. And I, again, I don't want to generalize about formal elements across all Asian American poets or, against, or across all American, but even in the work, formal elements in the work of one poet's body of work, how to theorize the relation of those structures to social historical context or ideological context. Because mm. it's not simply background. History or ideology is not simply background. It's not simply mirrored in the language, right? There's a certain way, and I don't know, it's it's a mystery in some ways, And but I'm sure that with further work, one can think this through. And I think a lot of the Russian formalists were thinking this through, right? They were really trying to think about what is the relation between language-specific, very, very concrete, specific forms of language and um these larger contexts, right? So yeah, I do think, to go back to your earlier um, point, Edmund, that the ways in which we've thought about things like metaphor or syntax or the subjunctive have actually uh, elided lots of things. Just as we said, literary history has elided lots of things that probably include difference all sorts of difference and concerns that um, that have seemed extraneous because they have been seen as ideological or um, non-essential to questions of form. But I think they actually are absolutely essential to questions of form. But I think there's a lot of work to be done on this. <clears throat> And I was sort of hoping with my book that I could open up um, possible lines of inquiry <laughs> that might be pursued, you know, mm. um, and that's my hope that, but you're, but I do think that, that this question of, of thinking very closely about form, not divorced from context, but not simply having a simplistic relation ship to context. In other words, it's not reduce. It's not to say that, oh, this person's a black poet, therefore we will reduce <laughs> their use of form to the fact that they're a black poet, right? Mm -hmm. That it's a, it's a very complex... I, one has to think through all the ways in which um, the history of language, the history of a nation, the history of of the reception of poetry, all these things are working through in language, right, and coming out in the language of not only black poets, but white poets, not only poets of color, but all poets, Um but I think those questions are very important, and I think sometimes they get obscured when we think of the larger debates, the larger polemics, right? Because mm. I think that kind of going in fear of that kind of reductionism while at the same yeah. time 
addressing all these different paradoxes in the, in the way that kind of the project of colonialism is also the, the, the project of reducing an entire culture and an entire world to an, to an, an essentialism or to, to um, yeah, um, reducing it or is, is, or it's almost, it can seem that the project of colonialism is, the, is a project of kind of cultural interpretation. Right. Um, it is almost is, is a project of close reading, which is a disturbing, <laughs> disturbing reflection is, yeah. that I sometimes had. Right, um, right. I mean, it seemed almost crazy when I was writing the book that, because we were always told that form and content are not binary, that they're intertwined. And I kept thinking while I was writing my book the whole time, like, I can't believe that more people, more critics don't look at the formal aspects of poets poetry by poets of color mm. it's it was just almost always sort of thematic readings content driven readings of poetry of all things right and as i said in the book even the people who worked on avant-garde poetry or who were very attuned to questions of form were doing the exact same thing right um so yeah i think that I mean, this is an area that one has to, as you were saying, this sort of idea of philology, too. Philology, of course, has been incredibly raced. Um, the, the history of the link, linkage yeah. to classical Greece. I mean, the whole just insane ideology of the linkage of whiteness to Greece, mm. <laughs> which is this Mediterranean country that, you know, um, had lots of influence from Egypt and Africa and all these things. But, but I think the very idea of philology itself of etymology, all these things that, you know, that are so mm -hmm. central to the practice of English literary studies to literary studies. I mean, I love close reading and we do close reading, but close reading itself was, is not a neutral enterprise as many people mm -hmm. are writing on now. We know that, right? Um, whether it was practical criticism in the UK or new criticism in the United States, um, these practices were deeply um, uh, driven by ideological concerns but that's been hidden, you know, mm. so... Just thinking about um, the UK uh, context. So um, I first met you uh, in, the, in the UK at a conference that um, you were kind of key in putting, helping to put together um, the, the Rapper Park Race and Poetry in the UK conference. Mm. Um, can you uh, say a bit more about how that came about? I mean, it's, it definitely seems like a kind of, to me, for for me and, and lots of other people like a kind of watershed event but also one that could have happened should have happened before but it was amazing that it finally had happened and it like one of the things i ended up thinking was why was this not right. <laughs> but kind of really thankful that it had <laughs> happened if that makes sense yeah i mean yeah. i i was really pleased that um people from the sort of UK quote-unquote experimental circles like you and Andrew Brady and probably others too I'm not even aware of showed up and it was a mix of different groups mm, of people from mm. activists to poets to scholars from you know there were scholars of color I remember there was a woman from Cambridge who gave a paper um, but also sort of like white scholars like Peter Middleton showed up as well mm. it was a really interesting mix of people not just academics, not just poets, um, and people with different from different aesthetic groupings. So I thought that was great. And I hope that can sustain itself when we do our next conference. I think we should mm. also clarify for the listeners that there had been a long tradition of Black British uh, poetry writing and also 
I guess, some criticism and, and certainly a yeah. much, there had been social yeah. movements and there had been, so I do want, so I think what we probably should specify is that I think at the particular moment in 2016, when Rappaport came together, uh, because of the, just the interests of Sam and Nisha and Nat and myself, that we were interested particularly in experimental writing um, yeah. and its intersection with race and politics. But we certainly were aware of the fact that there had been this long tradition of black British writing and I guess some critics of that, right? Mm. Though I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think what we were particularly interested in was form and politics and a, and a, and a sort of racial politics that was not the racial politics of simply inclusion or diversity, right? Perhaps a more radical racial politics, at least I'll speak for myself, a more radical racial politics that, as Laurel um, was saying, came out of the, 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 the the impetus of things like Black Lives Matter and the outrage people were feeling about um, the way that uh, race had even after eight years of a black president, race and racism had was still um, such an, an incendiary issue that had not come anywhere close to being resolved. Of course, and um, in fact, if things the backlash was even stronger, right? And of course, now we have Trump. There's a <laughs> so uh, just on the on. On this kind of comparison with the U.S., it, it it's a really interesting aspect of a kind of post-colonial country which refuses to accept that it is a post-colonial country. So I guess there, there is this kind of um, for the U.K. there's this absolute ref- turning away from that history in education in the way we it's taught and in the way we conceptualise. British history, so that so that I think about race is kind of part of that. It's a mm. core part of that mm. like, refusal to think of a colonial context. Like, so like other countries have a post-colonial history, but somehow <laughs> Britain doesn't. And I think one question would be whether those conversations among poets or young people will actually influence, say, conversations within academia or not, or vice versa. Whether um, shifts in academia will then influence students in classes or things like that. Because one of the questions in the United States we're having right now in the wake of the kind of, we've also had a shift or some would say sea change in thinking about race and poetry um, is whether that is a permanent change or is it just a temporary thing? Or is it going to, is it mainly among people on social media, for example, among poets on social media, or is it actually shifting, um, scholarship and say the discussions within English departments or does it even matter I think one question nowadays in in the United States among some graduate students or among some say radical poets of color uh, is they don't actually seem that concerned about English departments or literary studies anymore they're much more focused on things like critical race studies or the work of like Afro-pessimism or or Afro-optimism they're much more interested in performance studies um, things happening in the visual arts rather than, say, what a traditional poetry scholar is is or is not thinking about race, right? So that's another question. Um, mm. I think, does it even matter what happens in academia? I actually think it does matter what happens in academia, but but it's probably, is it still going to matter as much what happens in an English department, right? Or, 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 or are there things that are happening in American studies or comparative literature or ethnic studies or they, that that actually are going to change things on a, on a on a much deeper level than say what's happening in an english department i mean there's been a yeah massive 
like movement of decolonizing the curriculum mm. across right. like UK mm. universities like right. obviously in so us like I guess and but you know even in like London College of Communication in like I know in the sound studies department wow. like, they have to decolonize yeah the that's an incredible thing happening right that's a recent thing right yeah 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 and even in Cambridge right or places like Cambridge I've heard that there are those movements right yeah yeah, yeah. And and yet I love literature and literary studies still. So I don't know. I feel a little bit torn about like, I mean, probably this is like the residue of colonialism within me. You know, my parents were also English professors, but there's a part of me that doesn't want to give up literary studies or doesn't want to give up poetry studies. But I know some of the younger um, scholars of color tell me sometimes that they don't really care about it at all. And they're perfectly fine if poetry studies just disappears, you know. So I don't know how how we feel about that. <laughs> but hmm. <laughs> um, I guess one thing we we wanted to ask us: Who are you reading? Who's good? Oh, who am I reading? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean poets or and critics? Anything? Both, both. Oh, okay. Let me think. Well, gosh, there's so many good poets right now um i can't even keep up with the the actually experimental um minority poets in the, in the u.s there's so many people um i'm actually on leave right now so i'm not reading for classes um but for example well unsung kim is a young asian american poet who's both a scholar and uh a poet and she came up with a book it's wonderful a recent book and um, I've also been, you know, Sam Solomon, who's actually an American poet teaching in in, um, in Sussex, whom we know, who did Rappaport, who does Rappaport with me. I just saw him give a reading in Brooklyn, and that and the, and his poems are wonderful. And then um, I've also, I think I might have mentioned this to you, Edmund. There's a new edition of Sadakichi Hartman's poems edited by Floyd Chung. So I'm very excited about that. So that's an example of kind of archival recovery or work of an early Asian American poet who came in the 19th century and actually knew Walt Whitman. And I think he came in the 1870s. And um, so I think, okay, I think that's what I'm reading at at this moment, but I'm sure there's a lot of of stuff I'm forgetting as well. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. okay, sure. Thank you. Yeah. Nice talking to you. So good. Are we done? Yeah. Okay, so um, this is Shed, and we're really happy to be uh, talking to Nishna Ramia. Hello. Hi. This is really good, because um, 
definitely one of my favourite poets. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we're friends with her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah. I think the first time I uh, came across Nisha's work was um, at the Sussex Poetry Festival a few years ago. Um, yeah, I had an encounter with a kind of um, writing about race, Sanskrit, rituals and mourning um, across media, I particularly remember. Yeah, I mean, I think the first time I met you technically was like at a reading in Kent. I was quite scared of you before because I knew who you were, but I didn't know anything about you. But then I feel like your, your, your presence as a person like then reflected on like everything I don't know everything but yeah, yeah the most I, I just I think a moment I was like oh my god yeah this is an amazing poet was seeing you at UEA Poetry Festival I just you came across as like someone who like just put a lot of like a lot of thought and and like actually love into your your practice and it was a practice rather than you know just having a scribble and, and showing off so thank you <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. We're friends. You don't have to say that. I, um, I wasn't scared of you at first. I just became more scared of you over time. So <laughs> I'm actually petrified right now. <laughs> I guess um, we're continuing our discussion that we had with Dorothy Wang about uh, race and poetics and, and you know, all the sort of stuff that comes with that. Um Yeah, definitely. So, um, Nisha, to kind of introduce you for um, anyone who hasn't come across your work, um, you have published two pamphlets, Notes on Sanskrit and Correspondences, mm -hmm. um, and you've also kind of scattered in various publications a, a newer sequence, States of the Body, uh, produced by Love, and, and lots of other scholarly work, um, essays and loads of stuff uh, over time. Do you want to say something? Well, the kind of trajectory of those the, the two pamphlets and the newer material uh yeah well um so i think most of the work that i'm doing now came out of the um practice beach practice based phd that i did at royal holloway um from i think 2000 started in 2011 to 2015 and when i was doing that i started with sanskrit so i started learning sanskrit um and learning very, how to translate it very loosely and I use that to kind of um, get into lots of different sacred Hindu texts um, as well as lots of um, sort of 18th and 19th century British Indologist uh, texts and that was yeah that was when I started looking at Tantra, at goddesses, thinking differently about heritage, about being British Indian in a way that I guess Previously, I'd felt slightly embarrassed about writing about. Like, it wasn't... I didn't want to be doing what Dorothy um, describes very... Um, <laughs> very uh, accurately in, the, in terms of its reception as bad minority poetry. Um, and obviously, that's a, there's a kind of... Um, 
there's a particular way of judging poetry based on whether it's good or bad, which is racialized, and that's what Dorothy's drawing attention to. Um, so yeah, so I, I was trying to find ways of writing about basically being Indian or being British Indian in um, in a sort of scholarly way, in, in order to then finally come back around to being able to write about it in a personal way. So there is a there is an ongoing trajectory, um, and states notes on Sanskrit correspondences both came out of my part of my thesis. There's lots and lots more in my thesis. It was all about goddesses that I've not figured out what to do with. Um, and then I kind of put that aside to work on states of the body, which where I'm trying to finally kind of confront some of the things that I was uh, too ashamed to talk about before. I feel like the goddess of speech is kind of a constant presence and this idea of speech and speech being dis distributed. Yeah, I guess the the thing with the the goddess of speech is Vach, um, and so there is a etymological link with the uh, voice Vox. Um, she's but she's not she's a goddess, and she but she's sort of grammatically um, gender feminine, but she's not really. Um, and so one of the things I'm trying to figure out with the goddess is how to how to think about gender and so Vach is, is quite an abstract feminine um, whereas uh, lots of the other goddesses I was looking at were sort of um, much more uh, I don't know like uh, mother, the kind of um, stereotypical um, or the archetypal goddess figures so like the uh, maiden the mother and the crone um, to use the kind of western analogy uh, so yeah Vach it was the only way I was felt kind of comfortable doing it because Vach allowed me to uh, pursue the scholarly um, lines of inquiry in terms of thinking about philosophies of uh, voice, speech, language, sound. I mean, I'm at the risk of sounding sort of uh, pedantic or, or like sort of lowering the tone. I mean, I guess thinking about voice and speech and sound, uh, people listening probably be very aware that you're a Scottish poet as well uh, as other things and I was wondering how that plays into lots of this <laughs> well they might they might think I'm American usually people yeah. when they first meet me if they don't know they always think I'm American or Canadian sometimes um, but yeah well I, it's kind of funny because I uh, for the first time was asked to contribute to um, a Scottish anthology um, Thank you to Peter Manson for that amazing uh, poet based in Glasgow currently. And I always, I mean, in lots of ways, I've identified or people have identified me as Scottish before being Indian or before something else. It's kind of, int I don't know, it's interesting how these identities work and um, in what order they, they um, people respond to you. But the Scottishness hasn't really... I don't know, I have a Scots, I have a dictionary of Scots dialect and I'm kind of interested in setting an opposition between Scots and Sanskrit in terms of Sanskrit positioning itself as this or as scholars of Sanskrit, including the kind of ancient grammarians positioning Sanskrit as the most perfect refined language that was very much um, only for the, the, the highest class of people or caste of people in India, um, as opposed to Scots, which positions itself <laughs> and has been positioned by other scholars as being sort of low and base and soily. Um, 
so I, yeah, I, I would, I, one of the things I would love to do is come back to Scots, Scotland, Scottishness, but again, it feels like something that I have to go really far away from before coming back, which I think was the same for Ivor Cutler. He became Scottish when he moved to London. Right. <laughs> <coughs> so the process of kind of learning Sanskrit seems to be, have been a key one in your thinking and writing, as you were just saying, and um, a way to kind of go across the hyphen of kind of Indian, British, British, Indian. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of really struck by your kind of, in Notes on Sanskrit, your first pamphlet, by talking about the uh, lexicographer Monia Monia Williams and how Monia Monia Williams is whispering in your ear or talking into your ear and like your knowledge of Sanskrit is through him. Can you say more about your kind of relationship with Monia Williams <laughs> who, and who he is? Well, he is the 19th century, um, one of the 19th century Indologists and he is um, most known for being uh, the main lexicographer of the Sanskrit English and English Sanskrit dictionaries that are s still used today. Um, I I actually bought those dictionaries when I was in India before I'd even signed up to a Sanskrit class, but I just saw them, uh, these huge sort of maroon bound books with gold uh, embossed uh, print. And I didn't know anything about Sanskrit, but I knew I really needed to have those dictionaries. And then, so I got them and then I signed up to a class when I got back to Glasgow. And so in so many ways, my, the first time I, it was kind of, you know, when you meet someone and you have the, the moment where you kind of suddenly know this is it, that my first experience with that, um, with Sanskrit was via Monier Monieron. So he's never separate. Um, and yeah, I'm not a Sanskrit scholar. I've done lots and lots of evening classes. I did classes at a, a transcendental meditation center in Glasgow, um, evening classes at SOAS but I'm not a Sanskrit scholar and I don't do my homework every week. So I can't conjugate or decline as well as um, someone who's studied it for four years should be able to. But I love opening the dictionary and reading what he has to say about different words or bits of words. Um, and he makes all of these links that uh, some of them, I mean, it was he's man of his time and there were, there were all sorts of kind of interesting theories about the Indo-European, not just language family, but uh, comparative literature in relation to comparative mythology. Um, and some of these were taken in all sorts of um, vile directions. But yeah, I just, I love the, the kind of, that he, the, the attempt to make links and make correspondences. Um, <laughs> just is the name of my second. <laughs> so I'm always interested in the same things. Um, well, that was, that's one thing I, I, I saved, I noticed about your work, which is, like, uh, every sort of, like, thing you do that is a, a definite project, but it's it's all... Um, it is all a project in itself as a whole. And, I mean, you've talked about... Um, I think one of the things I was stripped by was uh, when I first saw you read was, like... Oh, it was one of the awful things in many ways, like, um, when... You were introduced as a poet who was sort of investigating this idea of a tantric poetics and uh, being at this like uh, festival where you know at least two white poets made like gross sex jokes about that, uh, and you you came and I just like I don't know chucked all that in the bin. 
Um, but like, yeah, I mean, would you say that's the sort of like uniting thing throughout these projects? This idea of a tantric poetics was that a specific thing to a time you were working at? And I guess could you explain it a bit more? Well, um, I still can't explain. So with the tantric poetics, um, it's something that I've been sort of uh, trying to articulate for for years. When I when I first started studying tantra. I was drawn to the fact that it was um, tantra again etymological links. So uh, to text to thread, um, tantra is it refers to the the um, the loom, the weave, but also the individual threads, also the act of weaving. So it kind of contains all of those aspects within it. Um, and so I, I find it I find it a useful way to think through. So it refers to this kind of particular. Uh, spiritual and ritual practice but also it's used to refer to texts or um or or bodies of work um so it felt like a really useful linking device and also once you you know once you see something you can't help but see it everywhere um again that feeling of being in love you see the person's name wherever you go so it was a bit like that with um with tantra and sanskrit and i do feel it's important to have a coherent project. I don't want to stray too far from it until. Well, there's no, there's no, there's no sense of covering every single bit. But I just, I want to be. I'm committed to it. I feel. I keep. I, I'm always talking about, it and this relates to tantra, um, being devoted, or um, um, adoring something. Being and and I do. I want. I position myself a bit like that because I also think that in order to get to the places where I want to go um, ethically or politically that I need to be kind of doing that throughout my practice so it should it whatever I'm doing in my poetic practice I'm hoping is also like how I can conduct myself outside of that so it, it always has to yeah so there there is a level of commitment that's required and sometimes I think I'm thinking through things in the poetry in order to be able to um, take them outside so in a way it's like a testing ground for like just um being in the world and like carrying on <laughs> Not really but, and, so, and so if that kind of testing ground or way of being in the world also involves kind of translation and lexicography or investigating lexicography and perhaps de-lexicalizing and re-lexicalizing in the kind of way that um there's kind of post-colonial, decolonial theorists talk about that kind of colonialism is a way of kind of lexicalizing in the way in the sense it's a way of um culturally moving lots of different things out and then kind of reorganizing them in the big books um mm. back at the metropole library and then um part of the process of decolonizing it uh, um is this kind of focus on lex lexic <laughs> lexicalizing which i kind of i i read in your work but i don't know um if you're kind of interested in dictionaries, it's obviously a, a, has this um, way out and way in kind of element constantly. I mean, like, could you maybe like unpack those terms? <laughs> a bit there? So, <laughs> so I mean, you've so. got to be able to say them at least as first. Well, well yeah. <laughs> Ready and unlexicalizing. Um, so, it. Particularly stems from some essays by Spivak, but from other theorists as well. Um, in terms of making a dictionary, making a dictionary, if you are the colonialist, is 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 
in one way, there's, there's kind of very simple ways in which you, you're kind of training uh, an, an administrative force able to kind of understand the country that they are trying to administrate. And you're also kind of, um, that I particularly like um, a line in Edward Said's Orientalism when he talks about like interpreting a, a particular line of Arabic poetry is, is on a scale to uh, attempting to govern a country and then there's actually a continuum between those two things so it's not like there were kind of scholarly orientalists who just wanted to really understand kind of the history of pre-islamic arabic odes and there were other kind of orientalists who were kind of trying to do military maneuvers there's this kind of continuum between the two um and that's uh colonialism as an act of cultural interpretation and that act of cultural interpretation is obviously huge and historically shapes everything that's happened since so the so it, it, the question is kind of how to write now within a world that's and linguistic worlds that where that has occurred so the idea of kind of de and relexicalizing is one way of thinking about how to how to carry on writing in um linguistic linguistic semantic fields that have been shaped for centuries <laughs> does that does that unpack it? I don't know. That's not quite. It. I mean, I, it. I'm not entirely. I. I. Not quite comfortable enough to use those terms. But I think to begin, I'm absolutely uncomfortable with translation. It's, I'll maybe come back to that. But the thing with the dictionary. So I should have said before. So Monier Monier Williams created this dictionary or um, compiled this dictionary um, as a tool to convert the natives. He was also um, an evangelical Christian and the idea was that um, once you know Sanskrit then you can translate the Bible into lang um, languages, other uh, Sanskrit and other Indic languages that um, can be then used to convert the natives. So it was absolutely a tool um, used, uh, created for um, missionaries and and also Monia Monia Wilms went to the, um, he the Haley Borough College um, Haley something. The East India Company. The East India Company. Training college. Yeah, yeah, training college. Yeah. So it was it's absolutely a tool of um, colonization. So when I look at it, I, I'm never, I don't, that's always at the forefront of my mind. I'm always thinking about that. So how to use something that's been created in a way by an enemy for enemies. Um, and that's why I find, find it really funny that I the first place I came across it was in India. And because actually so many of these books that were um, written by these British Indologists um, who were, you know, often completely racist. They're being republished in India and that's where I've, I've managed to get so many of them. So I think that there's there's a, there's something about that. Um, but with the, just with the translation and the um, use in the dictionary, I'm not comfortable with the kind of, there's no easy translation and things shouldn't be um, things aren't equivalent and I, and I don't want to treat anything like it's equivalent. So one of the things I guess that the ways I try to show that or do that or demonstrate it is by never, I never would do a sort of smooth translation. Partly there's a lack of skill involved, but mostly it's because I think that you should make the process of translation really, really transparent. Um, and I kind of see that as maybe like a demystification thing. Uh, so when you um, make the trans the translation transparent, the process, 
you make the authority, the supposed authority of the dictionary and whoever made the dictionary, if you make that transparent, or if you appropriate that kind of authority in your the fact of doing the translations um, or speaking in the voice of the lexicographer, then those are maybe all ways of, of showing how, or of just like drawing attention to language in that in that way and how it's been used and how it continues to be used. And I don't want to, I don't want to keep, I don't want to replicate those things myself or reproduce them myself. Um, but I'm, yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, your, your whole thing is, is being, you know, very self-aware of like the, the taintedness of your own access to those mm-hmm. things. And like you said, you, you know, doing evening classes at SOAS. I mean, yeah. like, SOAS was like, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like an originally like a, a, training like British colonial so- soldiers wasn't it what, like educating them wasn't it yeah, I think it has that I'm not sure you know, it's still got the term oriental or, yeah, yeah. in its name I suppose I don't know maybe if that's wrong I cut out or whatever I don't know um, but but like yeah I mean that's the whole point of kind of moving through and it's a kind of weaving which is you know not to be too like um, glib about this but which is, is is the kind of weaving that is the the idea of what tantra is in from what I've, I've got from what you've spoken about it um and the, so the lack of definition or clear explanation is also deliberate because yeah. it's not supposed to be something that can be can be um it's not a kind of knowing or or understanding or or thinking that is um that is definitive or that is itself definite about what it is and that so that's kind of there's a there's a reason why I don't want to I when I try to explain it it's in a pamphlet of poetry or it's in um, an essay that's four thousand words long um, but it, there's no way of actually kind of articulating but I think that's the point but that's deliberate. There seems to be this thing in tantric texts and poetics of really it's it's it, as it appears in poetry is kind of incidental to it being beyond language or, or kind of <clears throat> its appearance in language is going to be incredibly paradoxical and knotted because it's not about creating literary texts in any sense but I guess and but so then there's there's something about kind of the racialization of difficulty and obscurity which kind of relates to what you're saying about no smooth translations right yeah mm. I, know, I, I was just I was going to say I think that's a good a good segue into some of those questions of like uh, I don't know um, like the state of of poetics that we are are all like kind of you know implicitly referring to that the, the kind of experimental poetry scene and, and that you know you've talked about the sort of ra- like you know the racialization of those terms but um, I mean I'd, yeah, I didn't want to interrupt that I think you might have been saying in, in response to Edmund there but no, well, it was, um, I suppose, oh, I was going to say that, so I'm teaching a third year course at the moment, um, it's an English and creative writing called Poetic Practice, and we've been looking at the language poets, and I'm sort of, I've, I've, I studied all, I studied that when I was doing my BA so and my MA. Who, like, who, like? Oh, uh, Ger- yeah. Charles Bernstein. Charles Bernstein. <laughs> I like Bruce Andrews, um, Lynn Hedini, and Susan Howard. Those are the ones we were looking at. Okay, and is there like a what's the sort of like? Yeah, I mean, because I, I guess like not everyone might know about 
language poetry. I'm still like <laughs> working out what that means. But. Um, well, it's it's a sort of l- loosely formed group of poets um, who were working in, I think, on the east and the west coast of North America from about the 70s to the 80s. I think that was the kind of um, the when the magazine, the language uh, magazine, was running, um, and they talk a lot about. difficult poetry and they're coming out of a sort of tradition I guess that kind of goes along Ezra Pound, Charles Olson and then we get to um, Charles Bernstein, I think that's (laughs) the lineage Um, I'm sure he'd love that if you were like saying that he's like (laughs) the missing link there Um, but one of the things that they talk about a lot is that language isn't um a sort of transparent window through which we see the world is part of that which kind of constitutes the world and so they're trying to make um, these things sort of more um, explicit, make the way that we think about and how we use language more explicit in the poetry so it's deliberately difficult because it's not, it shouldn't be easily consumed it shouldn't be easy to see through and the thing is with and I, and I so I, I absolutely am informed by those ways of thinking uh, because those, yeah, that's what I studied and and what I really took to heart when I was um, still at uni uh, and first encountered experimental poetry. But in recent years, I've been thinking more about the racialization of of that. And I suppose that there is sometimes um, a, a a feeling, and it can be it can be self imposed or or imposed from outside or, or you know really maybe those similar. Um, of if you already stick out in a culture or a society if you already don't quite fit in um and Sarah Ahmed talks about like the the person of color sort of sticking out and it's like a sore thumb that you kind of like um jam and so you you feel yourself to be very extra present um and to be sort of maybe throbbing or something that and you you try very hard to blend in somehow or not be as noticeably different and so and that can um inform how you write as well so if you want to talk about experiences that are different you have to write in a way that's more easily understood or um absorbed uh which and there's not the and so i guess i started thinking about um i was teaching another course on vernacular writing and i was we were looking at linton quasi johnson and who's uh, one of the sort of best known black British poets, um, also sort of known as the dub poet, and he writes in um, he the, his he writes in a dialect, and it's not a sort of standardized dialect. Sometimes he spells the word one way in one poem, sometimes he spells it another way in another poem. Um, it's all about the sort of sounds and patterns of his speech, and it can be difficult to read if you haven't read or if you haven't if you're not familiar with um the sound of his voice i suppose um and but i mean students are are very open-minded much more open-minded maybe than literary critics or or scholars um but i was thinking about how that's described as being difficult sometimes in a way that it, it doesn't come with the same sort of um um scholarly or intellectual credentials as Charles Bernstein's brand of difficulty or J.H. Prynne's brand of difficulty um, because it's not, it's, yeah, it's not learned or it's not, but it's, then we have to then immediately, as soon as you try to describe why it's not as difficult as J.H. Prynne or Charles Bernstein, you realise that what you're coming up against is to do with race and with class um, and... 
yeah so I just started I kind of did a little I was looking at the dictionaries and I was looking at the sort of um, various kind of meanings that is including the sort of more obscure ones of, of obscurity actually and of difficulty and so much of it was to do with darkness and light um, and so I just thought that that was a useful way of approaching how we think about those terms and maybe um, and so as soon as you kind of want to shed light on something or um, you're, you're trying to make it brighter or lighter and maybe want to keep things keep things dark keep things uh, maintain something of that darkness and as a deliberate choice and um, so we um, were talking to Dorothy a little bit about the uh, Rapper Park project um, and uh, there was a previous conference and a conference to come but in the meantime I think you and Sam Solomon uh, were instrumental in organising and then said the Poetry Library um, Citizens in the Archive I think it was called Citizens of, of the, the Archive. Archive Uncovering Race and Poetry um, <laughs> <You think? laughs> it didn't necessarily come up with titles, um, but it was. But actually, I quite I um, t- quite took to that title because there is there is a question of what citizenship is also thinking about legitimacy or um, yeah who or what belongs and what what processes have they had to go through in order to to belong according to you know particular regulations. So it did it, the yeah the title worked out quite nicely. But the the idea of that was. That we were, we were realizing that. I mean, I was educated in in Glasgow and then in us at Royal Holloway, um, which is in Surrey, so close to London. Um, Nat Rathar, so she was also part of uh, when we were conceiving this group. Was educated various places around Wales and Southern England, um, and Sam Solomon has been teaching at the University of Sussex for a while, and you know has. Uh, lots of knowledge and experience of uh, English, British poetry. And yet we were just talking about how little we'd been taught um, or had encountered black British poetry or or um, sort of poetry, which is, is sometimes called like poetry of the Commonwealth or um, this kind of thing. And we, we sort of thought, yeah, if you go to university, sometimes you can take a module on post-colonial literature or on black British literature, if you're lucky. Not everyone can at every university. But um, we kind of thought we needed to we needed to re-educate ourselves. So we just had a day, we went to the Poetry Library. We were just going through, we made a list of um, black British publishers who uh, were operating especially around the, um, from the 60s, New Beacon publishing was set up I think in the 60s in the early to mid 60s and then um, there were quite a few different ones um, all across the UK operating until about the 80s 90s 90s seems to be when some of them closed down for whatever reason or lost funding or um, yeah so we just took out loads and loads of these books and there were we had stacks and stacks and stacks and some of them were quite dusty they hadn't been taken out very much and we just thought it would be really great to have an event where we just show everyone all of this material that's over here lots i mean there are of course there are lots of people that are aware of it but there are also lots of people that aren't and maybe even don't know where to start we had some academics who were kind of like we do know that we need to um have better practices in terms of diversifying the curriculum we don't always know where to start with this so it was quite it felt like a kind of a good opportunity just to um bring lots of stuff out of the um 
not quite archives, but the poetry library stacks and just show them all, have people just invite. We had um, sort of young students from school and then we had members of the public, we had academics and we all just sat together and put all the materials out on tables and just flick through it and try, try to read things together. And um, yeah, so it was quite a sort of informal day. And then we did have um, a panel discussion and then we had a poetry reading in the evening. Um, but for me, I, especially, I was, it was it was so great to be. Uh, we I remember one particular conversation with a student who's from a local school um, in London, which actually I think Rachel Long went to. Um, Rachel Long was one of the people who um, was running a workshop, and she also did an amazing poetry reading in the evening. And this, it was a young black student, and she was saying she's never ever read a black poet at her. She's doing her A levels. She'd never read a black poet before. And when she saw, she pulled out a book by I think uh, Jacob Sam Rose, and she was like, "Look at him, he's young. He's not like an old white guy." And she was so, it was, she was so excited by it, and also completely st struck. Like, and I just yeah. There's definitely something wrong with that. Um. So I guess like you've um, you sort of like yeah definitely like that was a a pinpointing of a, a problem that you kind of like that this event and the kind of wider project of rapper book race and poetry and poetics in the UK is trying to address. But um, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is like in some ways like a very easy thing for me to point out and be you know snottily critical of as a, as a white person but when you you mentioned about um the academics there who were you know talking about diversifying the curriculum um you know i get the sense that maybe you don't believe either that that is you know the solution I and mean, you know you weren't just running this event to be like here you go, academics, this is how you can, like, make your courses a little bit less white and therefore solve things. Um, I don't know how this forms into a question that's not just really horrible and saying, like, what's the solution? Um, but I, I guess uh, maybe maybe a, a, more, a more sort of negative question of, like, what is, what is the problem with maybe, like, just being... I mean, you know, for both of you, like... What is the problem of... Because this is something we talked about with Dorothy. Mm. I was like, you know, what is the problem with just being like, are we going to just, like, make what we have a little bit different and more diverse um, in this sort of very... Um, sort of representationalist mm -hmm. way of just, like, doing some quotas or something. Mm. Well, I just... I saw someone um, posting on Facebook who... Um, she's an amazing um, sort of activist and she said something like every, you know, just get rid of the word eliminate the word diversify it should always be decolonized and I was kind of just thinking what about that, like what's the difference between these two things because diversify definitely it, that the problem with that is it becomes a token you have a token this or that and it's 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 very superficial whereas decolonize is like dismantling taking something down it i think it, it's necessarily a negative movement um and like because it's so much is is we need to undo so much before we start kind of doing the the building you can't uh, and the, the problem is and i've seen it happen is that you just uh, put one book 
onto a kind of a reading list of 15 one book by a person of color and then you've solved the problem but obviously that's not um it's not so simple and it's it's so much about how you read as well and um so i, I kind of want to be thinking about um methodologies as well of, of close reading i think this is something dorothy might be working on as well um so it's not just yet yeah, about how we read poetry not just specific texts or well, not just poetry sorry but um literature and also about having a different understanding of world literature a different understanding of how um we've there there are much more sort of um, back and forth dynamics than we're aware of when we study um particular texts so like Vani Capaldeo has written about um she said talked about how Shakespeare had much more um understanding of I, I don't know that Shakespeare if we look at Shakespeare we should be thinking about like what was the kind of existence of a Turkish population in in London at the time or what was the, what were the relationships between um these two places and it wasn't just that you know it's just having a better understanding of some of the not just the English history when we look at Shakespeare but um and lots of people are doing this kind of work but yeah, I think just having a more um, an under, part of decolonizing would also be having a, a better understanding of these legacies. Yeah, I think I think I mean I think that what you said about like reading practices and methodologies and like why we read things in the first place is like you know pretty illuminating in terms of like that. There's an implicit assumption in in kind of the discourse around this obscurity and, and language po poetry is um, and. and those other sorts of avant-garde schools that come from that about um, the sort of reasons why you might be reading poetry that make difficult poetry radical in that context but then you know then they'll be like you know this is a sort of anti-fascist poetics but then you've got on the other hand like Linda Quetzal Johnson saying you know like smash their brains in because they ain't got nothing in them like on like a dub track that you can play on a sound system which <laughs> yeah. loads of people are listening to like, an anti-fascist demo right. it's like oh is that what's better for like um, <laughs> practice um, I suppose um, but yeah I, 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 yeah well then but then I guess you in the UK example there was like Sean Bonney and you there are like these images of him still circulating kind of um, do like standing on I don't know it looked like sort of plastic box and um, <laughs> do you do, do reading poetry for the um student um the, the student riots um so yeah I, I don't know then there's this whole thing about taking poetry to the to the bar the barricade yeah i mean maybe that's like too easy uh, uh, uh an opposition being like oh there's difficult academic poetry and poetry that you can read on a on a picket line or on a barricade or whatever um, I don't know, but I, I think I, I, just what you said about like, you know, why we read poetry is is kind of that's what needs addressing, not just like yeah. what poetry we do read. I guess one of the things that has, I was think I've been thinking about with teaching is that um, so so many students, if they sort of if asked, they they love the romantic poets, they love the war poets, they love Caroline Duffy, um, but some of the best conversations that we have are about the more difficult poets, whether that's um, William Carlos Williams or Charles Bernstein or Emily Dickinson um, 
or most recently I was looking at Lynn Higginian, the, the best conversations that we have are about the difficult kinds of poetry and where we take one entire hour to just close read about five lines of a poem. And so I was thinking maybe that something about difficult poetry and reading practices is the kind of um, the sociality it can enable, um, which so if people, I mean, you have to have obviously certain luxuries to be able to um, go to a reading group but I do think that the kind of reading groups where you can meet and talk about poetry this kind of poetry uh, lends itself to, to discussion and thinking together and in a way that some other kinds of poetry don't um, I don't know yeah it's optimistic this my Fred Moten influenced optimism <laughs> <laughs> no I mean <laughs> The sort of sociality of like, you know, thinking through collectively or something that might be, you know, seem meaningless or like, you know, as a sort of improvisatory collective practice was definitely, definitely something to be spoken for in that. Like, I guess there's also like uh, the question of, uh, of ethical difficulty or. I don't know. Maybe this is, is slightly a tangent, but I don't know. I just remember quite painful very reductive discussions um, about, like, Baraka, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, like, uh, trying to read that poem Black Dada Nihilismus, mm-hmm. which has that line, Black Dada Nihilismus, uh, rise up, like, rape the white women. And, of course, you don't want to just be like, well, that's great. Um, but, like, people are just like, well, like, fuck him, then. Mm. Um but it's it's like such a you know I mean it's generally white people that are saying that right because they're not thinking about the context of lynchings and uh, yeah this ethical difficulty that is presented by um, you know perhaps aesthetically no or not aesthetically more simple but um, you know you know that's quite a direct statement um, it's not going to require hours of close reading to be like, what does it mean? <laughs> um, but maybe it requires hours of looking, reading the histories if you don't know them and um, right. trying to understand a kind of particular um, traditions or, or lineages um, if you don't know them. Because I guess that's the thing, if we're um, in a particular context or um, that's anything other than Baraka's, then we there's so much learning t- and thinking to do, and 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 because we we yeah we haven't been, we're all kind of having to self-educate it uh, when it comes to, um, in the in the UK or in certain, I don't know. So, like a decolonizing might be a situation in which that was something which could be understood without having to, like, re-go through that history. So it would, yeah. it would mean that maybe, you know, you came to this already with, with that history in mind, or where, you think, or... or... Sorry, I yeah. realise I'm taking up quite a lot of space in this conversation. But I, I do I do think that part of the decolonising would be, yeah, so not just that you learned that... Um, oh, I remember learning at school, the only thing... That I, I can talk. I remember about sort of studying about um, colonization or imperialism was that Scotland had a sort of failed attempt to colonize an island, I think called Darien, 
and everyone got malaria and died and it was, it was very embarrassing because they wanted to prove that they could sort of um, be somehow uh, stand up to England's amazing um, <laughs> all in, uh, have something to show um, but yeah there was no there was nothing about uh, slavery there was this maybe there was like whispers in the school corridors about the, the triangle and it wasn't just um, the, the, like the third point of the triangle that we didn't learn about was slavery and like and but that was something that was said in, in hushed tones and like so I do think that part of the decolonization would be like um we, that we should all we should like be learning all of this so much sooner um and understand how much of a part we have to play in it still and how these things are not like it's not disconnected it's not so far back that it doesn't matter anymore which is what how people try to um dismiss it like oh you're talking about ancient history well it's not ancient and it's still um relevant and applies Edmund so that um so that feels like this idea of this kind of ar an archive and education based around archives is really important because otherwise you end up with a kind of political situation where people wonder why aren't there just white people here and how other people just chose to come here um, as opposed to <laughs> understanding this kind of Britain as a post-colonial mm. place <laughs> to be in the light of uh, you know like Yesterday or today's discovery about like you know the first Britain oh, yeah. in oh, black. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's slightly different. Sorry. Well, yeah, that was. I quite enjoy the different reactions online. Mm -mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that that kind of like sense of archive and sense of history, I think, I would definitely be a lot more pessimistic about lots of these, um, lots of these ideas and um. Not to repeat myself because I was saying this to Dorothy, but also about this idea of kind of racialization as a process of obliteration and its crossover with um, the the differences generated by capitalism and the relations capitalism depends on and sits on. Um, it's it's really I think in when that when we trace those processes in language and kind of try to write poetry against and for and with them um that's a really interesting kind of high tense a highly tensile moment but overall um it seems like a very pessimistic frame that i <laughs> i don't know how you feel though <laughs> well i i mean it's it's not pessimistic if you if it's if you just think well maybe we're not expecting so much to change but but we can I don't, oh no I don't know I guess are you it's not that we're expecting things to get better exactly but we can be more knowledgeable <laughs> that sounds well pessimistic <laughs> well that's neutral <laughs> I'm still processing the whole what you were saying about the kind of that kind of Baraka example, which also appears appears again and again. I guess it like it appears in the kind of um, writings by the Black Panthers and mm -hmm. in um, Godard's film um, set in the UK, mm -hmm. One Plus One, um, 
which has kind of quotes from lots of those texts at the top of a scrapyard. Um, well, yeah, I've never quite... It's, it's just circling around. And, like, you know, in contemporary examples of, like, you know, ways of, like, you know, like, right-wing discourse appropriating, like, um, like pretending it's feminist in order to be, like, mm. oh, it's the, the migrants who are, like, right, you know, yeah. raping mm. women that we've got to... This is why we, we're kicking them out, because they're, like, sexual predators. And, like, you know, it, it points to this real, like... Um, problem in this like you know quite facile thinking about identity and and and, and in, in this like pitting one sort of group against another mm. doesn't really get us anywhere but um i guess I, well, I guess i guess in terms of in terms of what you were saying about um there's this kind of oh, i hate to use the term neoliberal or whatever diversity politics um, and, and you know, the identitarianism which has been taken up by the alt right and new sort of forms of fascism. Um, how does um, a sort of an emancipatory politics and poetics of race emerge out of, <laughs> out of this sort of like complete mess? And because I think. It's something that is like sort of latent in, in in kind of lots of the thinking both of you guys are doing, um, and like you know neither of you have this reductive politics of. Um... I guess it's interesting how and where that kind of emancipatory racial politics is embedded in language particularly um that's the kind of th- that's the kind of point that i'm ended up being really interested in um although nisha you were saying earlier that you're actually becoming more interested in music and um sounds and that's your next project is actually gonna <laughs> be that so <laughs> well i suppose it's because I mean, I, I guess in a way that when I've been looking at sometimes when I've been thinking about language, it's it's in in sort of it's in bits particles of words or syllables or you know it, it non semantic ways of thinking about language or ways that don't value semantic, um, and so in in a way it's it's sort of go it starts with that because thinking about mantras, for example, in in tantra, um, some of which some of which don't use words that have any semantic meaning or just bits of sound. Um, Om being the, the, the one that's most well-known. It doesn't, it, can't, it doesn't have a, a meaning that's outside of the fact that it, it contains all sounds and all meanings. <laughs> um, so I wanted to kind of make some links between, I guess, the research that I've been doing into Tantra and and ritual practices and thinking about community formation um, and maybe making some links with the other, the research that I've been doing um, on um, people like Fred Moten and and Black Study and Fred Moten talks about about ritual and he he quotes Claude Levi-Strauss at some point in in the break and he's talked about monasticism um, and that kind of Roland Barthes idea of like how to live together, and I was thinking that that might be a way of. Um, I want to 
I've been like we all have since because of people (laughs) because we've been reading Baraka and Fred Moten um have been listening to lots of jazz and I wanted to make more explicit links Uh, Ornette Coleman um seemed to have a kind of spirituality that I thought um might be interesting to kind of to trace um I can't I can't talk very clearly about it just yet because it's just basically wanting to um again do this sort of weaving thing and not force any links that's never the um it's important never to force a link but to see see what links might be there um I think it's interesting in terms of like what you talked about is this this earlier about this predominantly white school of of language poetry which was uh you know um did very you know like you know quite admirably sometimes you know attempting to defend its accusations of like obscurity or meaninglessness Uh, but then there was you know like years and years earlier than that there was like jazz um, yeah. which its response to to like these accusations, these very same accusations of like being pure noise or chaos or, or, or a scream was just to continue to do that yeah. um, and I don't know, there's something very pointed about that like distinction of how you react to that response and how or you know, which comes first also as well yeah, I, I think. Well, you were what was it, you were quoting um, from in the break, or uh, oh, you, can you read the quote? I think it's yeah. I try and find this quote. Um, I mean, like, like full disclosure at this point, I haven't read the whole of in the break, um, but uh, I don't know. There's in the preface or in the, in the introduction or first chapter, right? There's this discussion about screams. Uh, and you know it's in relation to sort of like slave existence and like you know the the ability or the inability of the commodity to speak um, uh, but well yeah anyway it's a quote in Merton's book in the break from uh, uh, Glisson uh, and it's um, from the outset that is from the moment Creole is forged as a medium of communication between slave and master The spoken imposes on the slave its particular syntax. For Caribbean man, the word is first and foremost sound. Noise is essential to speech. Din is discourse. Since speech was forbidden, slaves camouflaged the word under the provocative intensity of the scream. (coughs) It was taken to be nothing but the call of a wild animal. This is how the dispossessed man organised his speech by weaving it into the apparently meaningless texture of extreme noise. Uh, I think it's also pointed now how, like, how that practice of, like, that musical genre and the fact that it's allowed to become, like, a discrete genre of it, like extreme mm. noise or harsh noise is, like, such a, like... <clears throat> so, like, such a, like, white masculine thing, like, because... You know, it's safe now, right? Um, I don't know. Um, 
so there's something about jazz and that's what I guess Moten is talking about as well in, in the chapter on Hester's Scream about certain strains of of the saxophone almost almost being themselves like archives of of suffering um and so like something about that they still like constantly contain and reproduce some aspect of that suffering but then then there's this whole kind of the way that people talk about jazz sometimes as well um that it then became so kind of smoothened out um and the sort of hotel jazz bar thing but but jazz does remain itself it hasn't lost any of that like you've got the smoothened out versions which you know other people can have but um, there's yeah that it just i was just thinking about how how to think about like different ways of (coughs) recording history um or or Yeah, I don't know about whether about whether sound. I guess that was one of the things I wanted to think about about how you might think about sound as being a way of of documenting or or um, recording or like replaying a document or a record. Um, so yeah, I, that's that was kind of one of the, but it, it's so abstract. But that was kind of one of the ways I wanted to think about about sound and in especially and yeah well but I, I guess the thing with um the spirituality is like thinking about like a um an embodied spirituality because I, I want to part of what Thantara has sort of allowed me to do is to think about like a spirit that is absolutely in the soil, like is absolutely muddy and and, and, and bloody. Um and sweaty and you know is base so like because part of the the problem with spirituality is just it allows you to float away or to like be ethereal and slip through all the nets and um and that's not um what i want to do anymore with this and i don't want to um have spirituality that allows for a real you know the kind of mainstream hinduism is everyone's just waiting for the final release moksha where you kind of get to um you get out of the cycles and you just get to kind of be free and I guess float off into the into the atmosphere or join merge with the atmosphere but actually I think you know you keep you just the cycles are just kind of constantly being reborn and reborn and reborn like in the world and that's you know that's where I'm not interested in the transcendental um as as a, a way of kind of something to look forward to um because we're here and and so but that's not to do that's not so much about interiority because that's different because I'm actually when I'm talking about spirituality I'm sort of I'm talking as a kind of privileged um, middle class Indian person who has a totally different relationship with that where I'm having to ground myself differently because I come from a family that's you know, thinking about the ultimate, well, is not, is, is doing the kind of floating away version of spirituality. <laughs> um, but that's not at all comparable to a, a kind of train of angels slash slave train, you know, that's not. So, 
not yes the fact is I guess the I, the need to kind of claim an interiority is it's, it's totally dependent on subject position and, and experience and I don't know what do you think about interiority um <clears throat> I think that uh to to be uh defined by race is, is to be defined from exterior yeah. signs and to be kind of denied an interiority which is a kind of universalizing a kind of western subject position which um uh is therefore the the what the the key driver which of kind of violence and and death for people who are not white according to those schemas mm. which is then transported across the world through kind of capitalism um that's what I think. <laughs> and what, so if, what about the soul? So therefore, yeah, so I think there's like a kind of multitude of souls or like a multitude of interiorities um, within that, just even just within that history, which uh, are fought for or denied or... So yeah, I, de- I, I totally get what you mean about like kind of hist- properly historicising these different moments. Um, but at the same time, I think there is this kind of drive to obliteration, which claims to interiority are kind of fighting against but constantly denied even to the sense that like why is it that some people's deaths matter more than others mm. like why is it that um, police forces feel more entitled to kill certain people than are compared to other people which and it does I, it's, it is difficult to talk about it and I think that that's one of the reasons why people don't want to maybe study Baraka because it's so difficult to talk about these things mm. openly or or with people who you're not friends with who will forgive you if you say something completely wrong but like with thinking about that line about white women and then just how often it returns to white women but Danny Smith has that the poem not an elegy for Mike Brown and it's and they kind of say you know Helen was taken and um they sent off a thousand ships but Troy was shot and that was Tuesday and like there's this uh, there, it, yeah like our, I feel like white women are positioned in a certain way rhetorically by white men who in, you know who don't exactly I, I, it's it's a rhetoric for the white men they're not they're, it, that, it doesn't reflect on their own behaviour um, towards white women so there's something quite infuriating about then because I've heard white men say the same thing about how they can't talk about they don't want to um, read Baraka and it's I mean like not to be a downer but also like plenty of white women have proven the decades right I mean yeah. But, um, but yeah no obviously but like, wh- white who, women gets, also, who yeah. gets to position yeah. that, them as a as a as a trope, right, or, or like as something that allows you to leverage some kind of like um, other racial motives. Um, yeah. yeah, it's obviously yeah. But uh, David Marriott in I think in Haunted Life talks a lot about Emmett Emmett Till, um, who was lynched to death because <clears throat> of. I don't even know if the white woman accused him of flirting with her or if someone perceived something that looked like flirting. So I, it wasn't even necessarily her fault. Um, 
and but then yeah and so David Marriott talks a lot about this so there are there are ways that you can sort of contextualize what Barack is doing in that line by that's why I do think it is is also part it partly is just a kind of doing some reading um, on kind of on black study and critical race theory and you'll actually like will be able to come up with some of the kind of responses or, or ways of resolving some of these questions yeah I mean, it's not. It's not like we're we're gonna be like we could do everything we can to absolve Baraka from like <laughs> his anti-Semitism, like, like his weird conspiracy theories that he had at the end of his life. But like you know, you like you gotta have like but an engaged response. Yeah, and, it's just um, more that when that's just like okay, now can't talk about that closed door. And yeah. you were talking about that with the uh, Wilderson and. And then it's kind of like, oh, he brought up what he said, you know, now we can't read him or talk about him because of certain things he said. But it's not, you know, so it's just like how quickly it is to kind of disengage with some people um, and not others or how, and how much people are still trying to talk about Ezra Pound. It's just like, I think that's where you see <laughs> some of these inequalities. Good point. <laughs> exactly. Um, did we want to ask Nisha to read some poetry? Yeah. <laughs> feels like. Um, sure. Uh, uh, I could read the most recent thing I've done, or did you have? Did you want to uh, request no, whatever. something? No, whatever's good. Yeah. Also, um, maybe if you want to, either before or after, uh, do any like you know things you've been loving reading recently. Oh well, I can answer. I can answer that really quickly. Um, <laughs> well, Fanny Cafaldeo, um, because she won the Forward Prize. But have you actually read Measures of Expatriation really, really closely? Um, probably loads of people haven't. So even though she's she's, she's like she's like a well-known name, I don't know. I, I do think that um, I'd like to talk to more people. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just realised I. I read Vani, and then since then I don't think I've read anything apart from what I've been teaching. Do you want to read a poem? Is it? It's going to stretch. So I'm going to read Death, which is from the an ongoing bigger project, States of the Body, produced by Love. So there are ten states. Uh, that begins with Joy of the Eyes. The final state is Death. Um... And so I've done, I've written all of the other states. And so death is sort of, um, it returns to each of the the states that I've gone through and the things that I've been thinking about and writing about in the whole collection, um, or series rather. And it's, so there are kind of moments of repetition. Um, it's yeah. It, in a way, it, it's a, it's sort of like a, a summing up, like the the kind of the conclusion of of an argument or something. Death. From family, our seasons, seasons we conspire for the sake of crossed paths. From the metaphysics of inheritance, our dinner table training, our future-proof polish, to the left, to the right of the shade. Honey, loving, eyeing, dying, deaths of different kinds. I, 
family. I'm going to die. I will be hindrance. From the home of disease, the home of love. Our drunk eyes, our sandalwood dance moves. From the impropriety of multiple homes. All over the place folding back into thought. Reflected in white granite. Tensile heartstring, dulci putty. Almost always touching, stretching, thin folds back to thought. I, home, am going to die. I will be filament. From the hurting hold of here and there. From our remembered enemies, our interpretations. The state corrects itself. Corrections restated, reinstatements posed living bodies folded into the shapes of dead bodies. She puts her hands together, fills your mouth with salutation. Her hands part to pull dead bodies out of your mouth, your tongues, your mouth wide open as she ties the loose ends of your desires in your mouth, your other tongues, looping around her fingers, she knots your desires correctly, your loose ends dissolving, your hails of dead and dismembered bodies, her adornments, the parts of her body, her gathered bits, blood stickiness, golden threads, strings of pearls, hail choking, tolerance soaking, knots ending, fringing, pooling in your still opening mouth. I, India, am going to die. I will be unqualified. From the sad smoke of our origins, our safe distance, our wet socks. From the modernity of our sleeplessness, polymorphous deities, sacrilegious throbs. That goddess doesn't mean what you think it does. It is farther away than she looks. I, myth, am going to die. I will be slime trail. From meat, from wine, from carnal entitlement, from elective emaciation. From decapitation makes your hair look good, from squatting schematically, from agarbati burns, from painting lipstick on white petals, from applying white petals to purify skin, from plucking eyelashes, from translating sacrifice, from making you all the way up. I ritual am going to die. I will be directionless. From our well-formed, from our perfection, figment of millions, the passion of love, our great enemy. From generations of learning how to decline suffering, conjugate illusion. I swallow books upon books upon books to unlearn like-mindedness, to externalize cosmos. Another body grows inside my body, a statue of a woman, a veiled beauty, a hard-boiled egg. I am indifferent to the fires inside. Patience is a fully grown body just under my skin, wanting you, needing this ending, dreaming of being decontextualized. I, Sanskrit, am going to die. I will be sunny side up. From ocean, from abandonment, from unoriginality, 
from depending on the position of the planets, the explainers, their promises, the nonce borrowed defences, the walls they outline on your belly and back. From your poster paint instincts, your woodblock chorus, the compulsion to ask for help. Green and purple neck feathers dipped in salt water, liminal itch, driven to spurt. From the severed totalities of other tongues to the quick of being recalled. I, dictionary, am going to die. I will be testudinous. From infatuation as the condition of thought to devotion as the current rendering death. From my small steps towards you, tarnished silver, to my rubbings off the walls, around you wither shins. From your growing body, gendered by an accretion of touch, to your passers-by, unsexing the matter of your solicitude. From your three points, sinning religiously, to my fixed points, votive sediment. I, goddess, am going to die. I will be allergenic. From carrying a cross, a saviour, protector, the ripple of definitions, recollection, a network of dark blue shrill, a pearl work of safe crossings, darkness and enumeration of her strong stars. Her surpassing tones, accomplishment and end that she reaches by falling, fainting away, erotics a loosening of love's apprehension. I, Tantra, am going to die. I will be serrated. From the dead time spent apart from you, spending, lying, die for you, the time of lying alongside you from the lie of dying far from you, treading lengths apart from you, measuring time spent dead for you, parts of me die alongside you, dying me to write for you, writing time the death of you, eyeing me, devouring you, timing me from end of lying, ending you, return to me, returning time, devouring you, time ties to elongate death, longing to stop writing you, writing to return to time you. I, love, am going to die. I will be death.